0: Hey everyone, and welcome to Cozying Up with the Clear Cut, where we get up close and personal with women that inspire us. Today we're sitting down with the lovely Yola Roberts, and we discuss all things career, how to fail gracefully, how to pivot, and how to find your passion. Check it out. Welcome to Cozying Up with a Clear Cut, where we get up close and personal with women that inspire us. I'm so excited to be sitting down with Yola Robert today. She is a senior Forbes contributor and the host of the I Suck at Life podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I I am so excited to be here and I've recently become a little bit of a diamond uh, connoisseur freak. Congratulations. You recently got
0: engaged. AKA, I recently got engaged. We always say that the engagement (laughs) ring is the gateway drug into all your future diamond purchases.
1: (laughs) It really is. I'm already working on like designing like other, like more like daily, like pieces and, and custom pieces that I can wear. Like, um. Yeah, tennis bracelets, tennis necklaces. I got sucked into that. My fiance now even is getting into jewelry. <laughs> and he used to be not a jewelry guy at all. Like he wants diamonds in his wedding band. Oh wow. And he wants there's this really thin Cuban chain we saw, like really thin with diamonds, and he like likes it and so weird because he's a super white like northern california guy and and now he's like into jewelry and so it's it's kind of i think the way we did it it really once you learn so much about diamonds especially and all the different factors that go into choosing a good quality diamond you kind of start to appreciate it and it becomes like art in a way
0: yeah and he doesn't want to be left out
1: no he wants his own (laughs) like
0: So. so yeah, I, we're definitely going to um, dive deeper into your whole ring design process because I know you guys did it together. But first, I just wanted to learn a little bit about um, yourself and your journey. Can you tell us you know, a little bit about how you got into you know, journalism, writing, hosting? Um, what took you on that path?
1: My career path has been very non-traditional and I would have never expected to be where I am today. I, I now looking back, I'm, I just turned 28 and I put a lot of pressure on myself in my lower twenties to reach certain milestones and like be have certain career titles and accolades by the time I got closer to 30. And I am glad I kind of loosened up on the reins a little bit and allowed myself to like co-create with the universe. I know that sounds cheesy, because you end up in in spots and and you end up with oppor- in opportunities that you would have never even dreamt of being in. So for me, I when I got I initially wanted you know when I was in high school I wanted to be in fashion go to fashion school. I used to sew and design clothes, and I was a stylist for a little bit. And I ended up moving to L.A. from Kansas. I'm from Kansas originally. And I worked at Sunset Gower Studios at an event production company. And we did fashion weeks and we did a lot of stuff for like the sets. And we did a mix of like entertainment and fashion. And I thought I was going to like follow this career path into the fashion world. And I was also a stylist at Nordstrom at the same time on the weekends. Um, And I was 18, like I just turned 19, I guess at the time. And I realized that there was such a big missing gap in the way that consumers, stylists, and also um, like brands and and e-commerce stores and, and brick and mortar stores communicated together. So I decided I had gone to business school and I actually had one semester left of business school before I moved to LA. So I moved back home to Kansas, finished my semester of business school, and I also built an app. It was a virtual closet app. And that's how crazy enough, like my, my path started with this app that failed. And the one thing that I was really good at and how I got these pitch meetings and, and, and I won like business pitch awards and I won new venture awards and I got all these grants and I was able to get into the, these like the boardroom at Macy's and Bloomingdale's and Saks, you know, all these things. I was really good at telling stories and people would always ask me to write for them, um, to like ghost write for them. And I started my writing career writing for Elite Daily and it was very mm-hmm. cheeky stories that would go viral, like really like 35 thoughts every woman has while working out, eight ways to get rid of the guy who won't give up, the four closet types every woman has, like things like that, like really cheeky stories. And I didn't even think of myself as a writer. I was like, okay, people think I'm funny. maybe I'm gonna have a, a future as a stand-up comedian. I don't know. And that was it. And so when my startup failed, I was like broke like living on a couch in Venice <laughs> and mm-hmm. i would i would literally go to snapchat and eat at their buffet because we lived across the street from snapchat <laughs> like that's how broke i was but the way i started to make money again was to um ghostwrite for people whether it be for their own columns for blogs social media like anything to do with writing and i ended up ghostwriting for someone a venture capitalist. And I ended up going to work for him. And I became the business director, worked my way up to that at the VC fund. And that's when I started my appetite for more business type of writing um, developed because I was, you know, that was the world I was in now. So I was meeting really powerful women. I was meeting all these top CEOs, um, founders, investors, all these things. And I was like, okay, I can start to tweak my writing. And I think I don't want to just be a clickbaity, like millennial writer anymore. Because mm-hmm. um, I'd also done stuff for BuzzFeed and Paper and like those kind of sites, but I had an appetite to do more. And, I've, and I had ghostwritten for a lot of people who wrote for Forbes or Inc or Fortune or those kind of sites. So I knew I could could write. So I started pitching those outlets, but I heard nothing, crickets. And I ended up leaving the fund and kind of just did, worked in music for a little bit, worked in a marketing agency. And it happened that I ran into a Forbes editor at an event and I told her I deserved to write for Forbes. And she thought I was crazy, I think. <laughs> and we emailed back and forth. And she was like, um, put me through all these tests, kind of. And I had to send so many sample pieces, so many. I mean, it was very rigorous for me to even like get a chance to be on the Forbes site. And then they put out a test piece. And it did well. And so they gave me a contract. So that's how Forbes happened. Um, and it's such a long winded story because, you know, that is the story. Like it, if I didn't allow myself to lean into, I didn't even think I was a writer, but everyone else saw that talent in me mm-hmm. and I had an appetite for it. And I kind of just, if it, it, like I manifested it, but I also, I did things in peril worlds that could, help increase my storytelling storytelling skills. And so once I got the opportunity at Forbes, a few months later I left my job at a marketing agency and I was like I should try to go full in into this media world, focusing on my personal brand, focusing on other opportunities to write for other outlets and start, you know, and then I started to do more keynote speaking and public speaking and doing fireside chats and all those things. And so The last from like 20, end of 2018, up until, you know, before the pandemic, I was so focused on everything journalism and media. And part of that was starting the podcast, because I wanted to expand the interviews I was having, IRL, into an audio format where people could get to know who I was interviewing a little bit more. It's since evolved quite a bit. But that was the whole idea for the podcast. Um, And so since, you know, when COVID happened, I got more into consulting. Um, I had always consulted. Uh, Journalism was just, you know, you don't make a lot of money as a journalist. You have to do other things. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I got more into content creating as like a micro-influencer. And I started another podcast on mental health, and I've kind of gone back into the venture capital space as well. So back to where I was kind of when I first started my career. Um, but for me, no matter what I do, whether it's a podcast, whether it's something on video, whether it's creating content, whether, whether it's consulting or you know structuring a deal for for someone or fundraising or you know making video content everything at the end of the day is telling a story and to me I consider myself a storyteller i just use different mediums to tell stories with
0: Awesome. um, That's quite a journey and it kind of came full circle. So you interview a ton of people for Forbes and for your podcast. After doing so many interviews with amazing women, what's the biggest inspiration or lesson you've taken away?
1: <sighs> Not the, my, my show is called I Stuck at life. And the whole kind of meaning behind that is really it's life hacks and like ways to kind of navigate your life um, and, and finding ways to set glass. So I think one thing that I really appreciate about all the guests that I've interviewed is that they're vulnerable to share their failures and like the not so glamorous things that we might not see on social media or in the media. So the biggest lesson I've, I've always taken is like, I, I've taken from interviews from all walks of life and all different backgrounds and career paths. You cannot, like, what is meant to be will happen. And you can't look at failures or setbacks as, like, the end all be all. Like, those are just little curves in the road that will pivot you in the right direction. And I think the most successful people are able to move very quickly and adjust, adapt, pivot, move on from failures and setbacks versus maybe everyone else, right? They're just very agile in the way they look at those things. It doesn't crush them. Like when I was, yeah, like when my app failed, I was so depressed and crushed. Like I didn't want to do anything. Like I had a funeral for, for it. And I just felt like the biggest failure. And I was so unmotivated to, to do anything. And I wish I had learned what I've learned from people I've interviewed now back then, because I've been like, okay, this didn't work. What worked? What didn't work? What can I take? What did I learn? What can I take and apply it into the next thing I do? Um, And so that's, that is one like core thing that I find in common with all these people that they're able to just learn and adapt very quickly instead of like sitting and pondering on things. Um, And not everything's going to be a home run. Things aren't always going to work out the way you see it is the the way you think it will work out. And sometimes you kind of have to let go of the reins a little bit and let things happen the way they're supposed to happen.
0: And from your app failing originally, like what do you think you specifically took away from that and how did it help you, you know, move on?
1: So the, Biggest thing I took away, the idea was great, but I was trying, I'm not an app developer. Like I don't code, right? And I think Mm -hmm. I was trying to do too much and I didn't delegate enough. I also focused on, instead of focusing on building something, a, a community first, I focused on building the product first. And that was my biggest lesson is always focus on building the community first and whatever product or service introduce that later because if you don't have a community at the core of your product or service you know it's it might not a big chance it might not work out because you need that community and that Mm -hmm. customer to be there and be a part of your journey to buy and engage with your product and service. Totally.
0: And I know a lot of founders who, you know, invest everything they have their whole life into creating a company and kind of put all their eggs in one basket. It must be hard to accept that something isn't working or pivot. How did you know, you know, when to step away and when to move on? This is
1: a really good question. When I was losing my sanity, like, so the opportunity cost was no longer... It was zero, was sunk because I had almost run out of like the money I had, like my bank account was nearing zero. My developer that I had left the country with the code. Oh, that's another thing. Make sure you have every piece of code. If you're not a technical founder, like you guys are using like a joint software to have your code and um, things just started not clicking and not aligning And my mental health was suffering. My health was suffering. And I was going to lose myself in every single way if I kept pursuing it to make it work. It was like, stop trying to make fetch happen. Like it wasn't like, yeah, I mean, it would just, it wasn't working. And I, I knew I had to cut the cord before it got to, it was too late and I couldn't recover from it. So I think knowing... What your opportunity cost is for me, it was bank account combined with having, you know, CTO issues and um, my mental health and physical health and well-being being at stake. So that was my opportunity. That was where I was like, okay, it's become a sunken cost. The output is not output and input are not making sense. it's like, yeah, it, it was just at the point where I knew in my gut that I had to move forward.
0: Hey everyone, Olivia here. Hope you're enjoying our episode. Our clear cut collection features fine jewelry pieces inspired and designed with you in mind. Our collection is ever-changing and each piece is handmade and made to order here in New York City. Don't forget to check it out and use the code COZY, C-O-Z-Y, for free shipping on any purchase. Yeah, definitely. And now when you interview, um, you know, entrepreneurs, what is your favorite interview question to ask
1: them? Hmm. One, I mean, I... I used to ask this a lot and now I weave it into the conversation a bit more naturally, but like, what is one thing that you've failed at that you've been able to make a come, like turn a setback that you've made into a positive or a failure you've been able to pivot at. Um, So it's for me, especially when you're interviewing someone like huge and like in your eyes is perfect (laughs) and you hear like they struggle too. I think, it's not only it's great for other people to learn about that, but it it reminds us like we're all human. Right. And we're all just trying our best, and no matter how much money you have or how famous you are. Um, but it's again, it's the way and you handle these things that come at you is what sets you apart from everyone else.
0: Do you ever have future aspirations to start another company
1: or another app? Definitely. I mean, I have my, like, my podcast in itself is like its own media company. We've done Mm -hmm. a lot of partnerships, events, um, merch, we've done a lot of things. And I treat myself as an entrepreneur with whatever I do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I definitely, as as I mentioned, I'm getting back into the VC space. I, I definitely think I'll probably start another company in the future. In the CPG world, probably, and I definitely a bigger goal of mine is to start a fund for focusing on like female minorities, funding female minorities. So um, that's why I'm dipping my toes back into that space. So hopefully, you know, in ten years from now, I'm I'm ready to start my own fund.
0: Definitely, and in investing in female minorities, like, what do you hope? to you know, build for the future with that?
1: So the biggest thing for me is when I was raising money, the most annoying thing that hurt me so much is I would walk into a room with an idea that, or like I would walk into a room and my idea or my product would be farther ahead than a white male that went to Stanford and dropped out, mm-hmm. but they would get the funding. And because I didn't look like what the investors were used to, um, it it was very apparent that there was this kind of unconscious bias, right? Mm-hmm. And then when I worked at the fund after, I saw them and I would call them out and it made me so upset. Literally fund, they would turn away females and minority females who were profitable yeah. and who had a run rate, but then they would fund two dudes that would come in and write it on a chalkboard. And I literally like drove me nuts. And so my hope is, and and here's the thing about minorities, especially if you're a first gen kid, you or an immigrant, you have seen your parents work their butts off, and you several jobs. You guys had to get creative. The work ethic is impeccable, and you don't have traditional resources as people who are like were born and raised here for several generations so you have to find a way to make it work and you have to get scrappy but you find a way to make it work right and i think that immigrant and first-gen founders are able to do that in their businesses and they're not you know i'm not saying that if you're privileged you know whatever but but you're able to take that same work ethic and implement it into a startup or a business. And oftentimes, that makes you more profitable than your counterparts.
0: And I totally agree. I had similar experiences when we were starting out and raising money. I think that you know we were profitable, but it's something that it's also not just, I think, it's the mindset right if someone it's putting a lot of people didn't understand our concept or wouldn't even you know put themselves in our shoes so i think it's like the more perspectives you have especially in like the vc world or whoever is like funding um the more you're going to get you know more dynamic founders more like interesting mm-hmm. companies when there's just more diversity in like viewpoints
1: And it's better business. The bottom line is better too. Mm -hmm. Like it's not just about being inclusive, but those moments, like I've cried so many times after walking out of investors' offices, like bawled my eyes out. I've even thrown up (laughs) from how like upset I was. And I remember thinking to myself, I have to find a way to like, this isn't right. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do it or what I'm going to do, but just because I'm a female and I'm not white and I don't come from like a privileged background, like my parents aren't anyone important and I didn't go to an Ivy league school doesn't mean I shouldn't, I don't deserve funding.
0: Definitely. Especially if you have the work ethic and a great
1: business idea. Yeah. So that is a long-term plan. Um, but I'm working on it.
0: <laughs> that would be really amazing, and like so full circle, seeing it from like starting your own company to actually working in the VC fund, and then having your own.
1: <laughs> yeah, I. When you say it, yeah, it is very full circle when you say it like that.
0: <laughs> so what? Um, so that's your aspirations um, in the future. What are some things that you're excited about? I know that you just got married. I'd love to learn more about you know. Just got engaged. Oh, just got engaged. (laughs) Apologies. Yes, you just got engaged. Congratulations. I know. So in our space, obviously, we work with couples all the time designing their rings. But traditionally, people... I just had this conversation last night with my mom. She was like, do women participate in designing their rings? Like, isn't it supposed to be a surprise? Like more and more we're seeing couples work together from start to finish making these big decisions financial and aesthetic together tell us about why you decided to you know work together with your partner to design your ring
1: so that's a really great question and everyone was kind of shocked that I was really involved um two things my fiance. that's it's it only happened like a week and a half ago so it's still (laughs) very fresh i was like boyfriend fiance um he's not he doesn't he didn't know much about diamonds Mm -hmm. so i'm egyptian i grew up with tons of jewelry and diamonds and my dad is like a diamond connoisseur and my when i was born people gave me jewelry Mm -hmm. like that so i grew up with it so i've been into it since i was young and it's like a family thing and um initially we wanted to go get our designer ring in egypt uh because we have a family jeweler there and it's where my parents got their rings like and you know so it didn't work out because of covid so we weren't so we kind of had started thinking about like things we what diamonds i liked and types of rings i liked and that kind of thing and mark my fiance, decided you know he was like well i do kind of want it to be a surprise like i was like well yeah but like (laughs) it's a big purchase so i feel like we should do it right from the get-go and we should do it together so it was something we decided together a because he doesn't really know what i want And, like, he couldn't go through all the little decision – the decision-making process. And we didn't want something, like, just right off the shelf. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is a big purchase. So, we didn't – he didn't want it – you know, we both didn't want it to be where, like, he proposed to me. And I was like, oh, yeah, I think I want to change the band and the prongs and, like, the center stone. You know what I mean? So, it was – It was a decision, like, I guess you could say financially, because we wanted to make sure it was done right from the first time. And because, I don't know, he didn't, he's not a jewelry guy. So he's, you know. Well, not yet. (laughs) Well, now he is. He wasn't, sorry, he was not a jewelry guy. So he didn't Mm -hmm. know exactly how to go about the process. And thirdly, it ended up becoming a really cool bonding experience, actually picking out every little detail, it can get stressful, but like picking out every little detail from the type of gold or platinum to the shank, to how high the ring sits, to sourcing the perfect diamond and stone to like every little design, like we did that together. And it feels more like something that's ours. And it, you know, I think not to sound cheesy, like in a way it symbolizes like we built this ring together and it's kind of the foundation like of building our life together. Yeah, so I love that. I I really enjoyed it. We both did. And he 100% agrees. Like He's like, I wouldn't have done it on my own. <laughs> like never, like he tells all his friends like to do it that way because I don't know how he would fit. And I'll be honest, I didn't really know what I wanted. At first, until we really got into the nitty gritty and we changed the design a couple times. So. I I don't know, for us, it was the right thing to do.
0: And so besides your engagement ring, are there any other sentimental pieces of jewelry that, you know, have an extra special meaning to you?
1: So I have I don't wear it all the time, but I have a cartouche with my name and hieroglyphic hieroglyphs and then. On the back, it has my name spelled out, Uh, and I got that when I was ten. My dad got it for me. So for me, like, it's I wear it sometimes. It just depends on what what jewelry I'm wearing, but it's it's cool. Like, it's to me, it's like a a piece of jewelry that really reflects my culture. But you know, past and present. It's like ancient, but it's also (laughs) like modern. If I flip it around, so. I that's one piece that I've that I've always kept with me and worn since I was very young. Awesome.
0: Um, so kind of going back to um, your career a little bit, sorry to switch back and forth so much. Um, but if you had like a piece of advice for some like a young woman who wants to be an entrepreneur but is, you know, a little bit scared to take the first leap or doesn't really know what to do or is scared of failure, you know, what are some pieces of advice um, you would give to her?
1: Start. (laughs) Um, It's better to do something than to do nothing. And, you know, I think oftentimes the fear of what could happen stops us from making things happen so if you're so worried about failing and what does failing mean to you, write that down. Is it not having enough money, not being secure, not, um, you know, not being on a list like a Forbes 3030? Is it not being going IPOing? Is it not raising money? What does that mean to you? And then reverse engineer your failure. So if this is what you think your failure is, How can you work backwards to maybe avoid those failures?
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, it was so awesome chatting with you. Can you tell everyone where they can follow you, listen to your podcast, any calls to action
1: for us? Yeah. Firstly, thank you for having me. I was excited to be engaged and on the show. Yes. Um, (laughs) Because... yeah, diamond connoisseurs. I, I almost, I'm going to do an episode about designing the diamond. So maybe you can be on it and help me. I'd love to. <laughs> <Help> me, <yeah. laughs> um, you can follow me on Instagram at Yola Robert, and you can find my work. If you just Google my name, Yola Robert on, for Forbes, Elite Daily, Azure Report, and you can listen to my podcast, I Suck at Life, everywhere you find podcasts. And yeah. And if, you wanna see my ring, you can go to my Instagram because I I will I will be posting more about it.
0: That was such a fun conversation. I loved not only learning about her career but also how she designed her own engagement ring. Obviously we love talking about rings. Would you guys design your own engagement ring? Let us know.